thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, as we've been looking through Acts, we just saw that Paul and Barnabas completed their first missionary journey, and they go back to their home church there in Antioch, and they share all the wonderful things that God has done and all the open doors that God uh, provided there to reach Gentiles with the gospel. And now as we come here to Acts chapter 15, we're going to see an attack on the gospel message that Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming throughout this missionary journey that they had. The attack on the gospel message uh, is going to lead to this very important debate uh, that we're going to see here uh, in Acts chapter 15, a debate centered on what is required for someone to be saved. That's what the focus of this debate is. What's required for someone to be saved? Now, because this debate is so important, the church in Jerusalem, they're going to have a council. They're going to get together and they're going to discuss this very important question. What's required for someone to be saved? Well, you know, this is important for us to consider today because The same debate is happening in the church world today. Many are asking this question. What's required for someone to be saved? What's required for someone to have their sins forgiven? So this morning, we're going to look at this very important debate. We're going to see what they conclude there at the Jerusalem Council, uh, and we're going to learn some great things ourselves. And, and we're not just going to look at the conclusion that they come to, which you know for most of us will already be a familiar topic, but we're also going to look at how they came about that. The process that they went through is you have these two groups that are in a heated debate that are coming against one another. We're going to see how the leadership there in the church in Jerusalem handles this debate. And I think this is something that's going to be very relevant and important for us to learn from because, you know what, in the body of Christ, we often have differing views. We often have debates over biblical topics and doctrine. And, you know, the way in which we go about discussing and debating those things is very important. And so we're going to learn here four different examples that we see here from the leadership there in Jerusalem of how you should go about, you know, debating and coming uh, into contact with other people who differ from you uh, and the process in which you should deal with that. And so I think uh, there's a lot that we're going to be able to to learn from these verses that we're going to look at this morning. And so let's start by looking at what these strong differing opinions were as we come here to Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1, says this, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren... Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so Luke starts off saying there's a certain group of guys. They came from Judea. Judea is the region where Jerusalem is. They're most likely from Jerusalem. They travel all the way up to Antioch, and they have a message. And this message is really specifically targeted towards Gentiles who have now become followers of Jesus. And notice what their message is. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what they're saying is in order for a Gentile to be saved, someone who is not a Jewish person, if you want to be saved, you ultimately have to follow the customs, the law of the Jews, and you have to be circumcised, which was a significant thing, a part of that. Basically, they're saying that faith in Jesus isn't enough to save you. You need faith in Jesus plus the works of the law. Those two are the keys that they're claiming that, you know, it's not just faith in Jesus, it's faith in Jesus plus these other things. Now, remember, the believers in Antioch are predominantly Gentile, and they just sent Paul and Barnabas out on a missionary journey to reach mainly 
Gentiles. And so Paul and Barnabas have been out proclaiming a gospel message to Gentile people. And in Acts chapter 13, Luke records for us the gospel that Paul and Barnabas preached. And and I want to remind you what they said, because it's significant when you hear this group saying, hey, you have to be circumcised, you have to uphold the law of Moses if you want to be saved. Well, was that the message that Paul and Barnabas preached? Let's remind ourselves of the message that they were proclaiming. Acts 13, 38 and 39 says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Jesus we preach to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Notice the gospel message that Paul and Barnabas preaches. It's it's through faith in Jesus alone that saves you. It's not faith in Jesus plus the works of the law. And now you have this group coming up to Antioch saying, hey, 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 in order for Gentiles to be saved, it's not just faith in Jesus that will save them. It's faith in Jesus plus doing the works of the law. And so now you have these two different views of how someone is saved. Well, let's see how Paul and Barnabas respond to these men who have brought this message there to the church In Antioch, verses 2 through 5 says this, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent out on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to come to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem... They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So we're told that Paul and Barnabas, as they hear this message being proclaimed, that it's not just faith in Jesus alone, it's faith in Jesus plus the works of the law that saves you. They said there's, there's no small dissension or dispute that these guys have. Paul and Barnabas realize you are attacking the gospel. You are attacking the message of the gospel. And so Paul and Barnabas and these guys, they have this debate, this dispute that's going on as to what truly is it that saves you. Now, I think it's important to note that this is not a side issue. This had to do with salvation itself. This wasn't a matter of, you know what, we can just agree to disagree. This is a major doctrine in the Christian faith. And so there needed to be a clear understanding of what it is that saves us, what you have to do in order to be saved. So this debate between Paul and Barnabas, these men, they're, they're asking this very important question. Are we saved by our faith in Jesus alone, or are we saved by faith in Jesus plus our works? That's the debate. That's what is at the heart of what we're going to be seeing in this whole chapter. Well, the church in Antioch, they say, you know what, Paul and Barnabas, we're not getting anywhere with these guys Let's go and send you to Jerusalem. And we want to hear what the apostles in Jerusalem have to say about this question of, hey, how is it we're saved? Is it faith in Jesus alone, or is it faith in Jesus plus the works of the law? Go there and talk to them, and let's see what they have to say. And so Paul and Barnabas, they travel from Antioch to Jerusalem. On the way, they stop in Phoenicia, they stop in Samaria, and they get to encourage the believers there of all the things that the Lord did on their missionary journey. Because, you know, this was a time before, you know, you have phone calls or, you know, Facebook or all these different ways that we keep in contact with. So most of these people haven't heard about these great things that the Lord was doing among the Gentiles as Paul and Barnabas had done this huge missionary journey. And so now they're able to -to face-to-face say, hey, let me tell you what God has been doing among Gentiles. And notice that the believers in these places, they're excited. They're excited for what God was doing and that the Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus. And they get to Jerusalem They come to the church there in Jerusalem. They're well received by the elders and the apostles and the leaders there in the church. And they tell them all the things that God had been doing among the Gentiles. And notice as they're sharing what God has been doing among the Gentiles, we're told, but some of the Pharisees who had become Christians 
heard about the work of God among the Gentiles, and they rose up and said something in verse 5. Notice what it is. It is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and command them to keep the law of Moses. So here we see a group of men. They've become Christians, they become followers of Jesus, but their past, before that, they were Pharisees. Now, as we just went through the Gospel of Luke before we came to uh, the book of Acts, we've learned a lot about the Pharisees, and Jesus had a lot of negative things to say about the Pharisees, but the Pharisees were very focused on keeping the law. They really believed that you could be justified before God by keeping the law, and they tried very hard to keep every little thing that the law had said, and they actually even added things to the law that God never intended. And so they just came out of this very legalistic mindset from being Pharisees that you have to do the law, you have to do the law, and now they come to a belief in Jesus. And this happens with a lot of us. You know, we have a background that we leave, and we come to Jesus, and it's hard to just immediately get rid of all those different thoughts and all those different things that we believed before we came to Christ. And so these guys are still holding on to this belief that, well, wait a second, we just can't have faith in Jesus alone. I mean, look at the law. I mean, we spent our whole lives living this law, and so we're not going to just abandon it. And so they, wait a second, these Gentiles, it's necessary for them to be circumcised, and it's necessary for them to keep the law of Moses, just like we were all circumcised as Jews, and we've tried to keep the law of Moses. And so they say, no, we need to add this. This is something that we need to require of Gentiles in order to be saved. And so we have this group of Pharisees that have gotten saved with this mindset that they need to keep these things uh, within Christianity and put it on Gentiles to have to do it as well. Now, I think probably the most significant person in all of this is Paul. Because if you remember, Paul was once a Pharisee. Before he became a follower of Jesus Christ, not only was he a Pharisee, he was one of the most zealous Pharisees of all, and he went out to destroy Christianity, as we saw early on in the book of Acts. He was killing Christians, he was imprisoning Christians, he wanted to destroy Christianity. So if anyone understands the mindset of a Pharisee who believes it's all about the law and doing the law in order to be justified before God, Paul understood that because that was his life before becoming a follower of Jesus. But you know what? Paul discovered something and learned something that these Pharisees who become followers of Jesus have yet to understand. Paul came to understand it was through Jesus alone that he was saved, not Jesus plus the works of the law. And when he writes to the church in Galatia, he clearly shares with them this truth. Galatians 2.16 says this, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Jesus and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Three times in this one verse, Paul wants to make real clear they don't miss it. You are not justified by the works of the law. Oh, did you not hear me? You're not justified by the works of the law. Let me tell you again, no flesh shall be justified by the works of the law. He doesn't want them to miss this very important truth that you're justified by faith in Jesus alone, not faith plus the works of the law. Paul understood this, being justified by God, God declaring you righteous just as if you've never sinned. That's not because of some work that you do. It's because of believing in the work that Jesus has done for you on the cross. So here in Jerusalem, we have this same debate that's there in Antioch, the debate on how someone is saved. Is it through faith in Jesus alone, or is it through faith in Jesus plus the works of the law? Well, let's see what conclusion the apostles and the leaders in the church in Jerusalem come to concerning how someone's saved. And let's also note how they go about doing this. Not just the conclusion, but the process in which they go about dealing with people who differ from them and how they deal with them is another thing that we can learn from. Verse 6 and 7 says this. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, So the apostles and elders and these people who used to be Pharisees, who are now Christians, they're having this debate, this debate over whether someone is saved by the works of the law and faith in Jesus or just faith in Jesus alone. And as this debate is going on, Peter stands up and has something to say. Now, 
Peter is, you know, one of the apostles. He's one of the most uh, outspoken and respected uh, men there in the church in Jerusalem, someone whose voice would definitely be heard. But I, I want you to note that notice they didn't just leave this issue alone. You know, we'll just leave this to the conscience of every individual. You can just kind of decide for yourself, you know, what it means to be saved. They said, no, we got to deal with this. As a leadership in the church, we need to deal with this foundational issue of Christianity, and we're going to discuss it, and we're going to make decisions on it, and we're going to let everybody know what we decide. We're not just going to ignore it, which unfortunately sometimes is the way in which people try to deal with differences in biblical doctrine and different things. It's good to discuss it. In a right way, in a loving way, but it's good to definitely have those discussions. And so Peter now, he's going to stand up and he wants to share what his view is on this question. Are you saved by faith in Jesus alone or saved by faith in Jesus plus the works of the law? Verse 7 through 9 says this, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God... Who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, Peter is an excellent spokesman for this topic, because Peter is reminding them, hey guys, remember what God did, if you remember back in Acts chapter 10, Peter did not believe, as most Jews didn't believe, that Gentiles could be saved. They thought, you know, this is just for the Jews. God had to do a huge work to change Peter's mindset so that he'd be even willing to go into a Gentile's home, much less preach the gospel and see them get saved. And so he reminds them, hey, remember, I was the first one that God spoke to to show me that he wants to reach Gentiles. If you remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter has that vision. God tells him, hey, don't call unclean what I've cleansed. And Peter starts to realize, oh, it's the Gentiles that you don't want me to call unclean that you've cleansed. And God sends him to Cornelius, a Gentile's home. And Peter's there and he preaches the gospel. And as he's preaching the gospel... Cornelius and all who are there accept it, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They start speaking in tongues. They're all baptized. God does this great work to save Gentiles there uh, in Acts chapter 10. And so Peter's reminding his listeners there in the Jerusalem church. They were all familiar with this because Peter comes back there, and he tells them what God has done. So he's like, hey, remember what God did? Remember what God showed through me to you guys about his heart to reach Gentiles with the gospel? And he says, God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them, speaking of Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So he said, God fully received the Gentiles. He gave them the Holy Spirit. He saved them, and it was all through just faith in Jesus. They hadn't been circumcised. They hadn't been trying to keep the law. None of those things were relevant. God saved them through their faith and faith alone. So Peter's making a very strong argument here. Since God has already demonstrated that he saved and filled the Gentiles with the Holy Spirit just because of their faith in Jesus, why are we now going to tell these Gentiles, no, 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 it's not just faith in Jesus that saves you, even though God's already done this work. You have to now add the works of the law in order for it to actually happen. Well, Peter goes on to say in verse 10 and 11, now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Here, Peter wisely answers an objection, an objection that probably people who had their past in uh, as Pharisees, these guys who were Pharisees and now believers, they're probably going to pose a question. What's the problem? with asking or forcing Gentiles to basically be Jews, to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses, because they view that as something that's wonderful, that's godly, that's great. So what's the problem with asking these Gentiles to have to do that? Well, Peter answers that question, and he says, the law was a yoke which neither our fathers nor we could bear. If you look throughout Israel's history, you understand something very important. They never were able to keep the law. 
They never lived up to the standard that God had established for them. And Peter's saying, hey, our fathers before us could never do it. We could never do it. And that's something that we see. But what we need to understand is that's the purpose of the law. The law is God's perfect standard. And it wasn't given so that people could keep it. It was given to show people that they couldn't keep it. That God's standard was perfection and they couldn't meet that standard. And therefore they needed a savior. The law was to point people to this reality that God's standard is so much higher than you can ever attain to, and it points them to a reality that I need Jesus, I need a Savior, because I cannot do what God requires of me. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul reveals this reality. He says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Paul's saying, hey, the purpose of the law was a tutor. It was to point us and bring us to Jesus. It was to reveal to us, hey, here's the standard that you're never able to keep. You might do better than this person and that person, but you're still here and their standard's here and you're never going to reach perfection. You need a savior. The law was pointing us to that reality, pointing us to our need for Jesus that we might be justified by our faith in Jesus. So the nation of Israel couldn't keep the law. So Peter is saying, why are we trying to put a yoke on the Gentiles that we couldn't bear? Why are we asking the Gentiles to keep the law when we never could do it? Well, why are we telling them, hey, you guys should keep the law to be saved when if, if that was the requirement for us, we wouldn't be able to accomplish it either because none of us can keep that perfect standard. Peter goes on to say in verse 11 something very interesting. He says, But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Notice how Peter kind of turns the tables here. Because the gospel went first to the Jews. You know, God's chosen people were the Jews. And it was the Gentiles who were blessed when the Jews reached out to them. And so they always felt like, you know, it's us first, Gentiles second. But notice how Peter words this. (laughs) He tells them, hey, you know what? We believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as the Gentiles. He turns the tables. This is like me be saying, given an invitation for salvation this morning, saying, you know, you have the privilege today of being saved just like drunks and adulterers and drug addicts and liars and cheats. And, you know, that's how they kind of viewed the the Gentiles. We're the, the great ones and they have the privilege to be like us. But Peter understood something very important. You're not saved because of who you are. And you're not saved because of what you do. You're saved because of your faith in Jesus Christ alone. You see, many of these Jews felt like we're saved because we're Jewish. We're descendants of Abraham. We try to keep the law. That's why we're in God's good books. And Peter's like, no. You don't get in the good books, so to speak. You're not saved because of the fact that you are Israelites and that you try to keep the law. You're saved because of your faith in Jesus Christ. You see, how the Gentiles are saved is the exact same way that us Jews are saved. By faith in what Jesus has done for us. Well, Peter gets done speaking. And then Paul and Barnabas, they get up and they start to speak. And they're the ones with the most firsthand experience with reaching to Gentiles because they just spent all this time doing this first missionary journey and they've seen God do some amazing things among the Gentiles. And so they want to share. They've come down here to Jerusalem for this opportunity to share. And notice what they say in verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Paul and Barnabas, uh, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. I want you to note something there at the beginning. Notice that all the multitude kept silent and listened to Paul and Barnabas. Now think about this, because... A good portion of this group does not agree with the message that Paul and Barnabas have been declaring. And Paul and Barnabas now stand up in the midst of this debate. And the other side who disagrees gives them the respect to listen. Is willing to say, you know what, we're going to hear from you guys. We're humble enough to say, hey, we're open to hearing your view, to hearing your opinion on this matter. This shows that even though there had been much dispute, these men were of an honorable heart. They were willing to listen and be persuaded if they were wrong. You know, I think this is something that's so important for us when debating doctrine and biblical truth. And this is the first godly way to deal with different opinions that I want us to note. 
A godly way to deal with different opinions is to humbly listen when others share a different view from yours and be willing to be persuaded if wrong. Humbly listen when other people are sharing a different view from yours and be willing to be persuaded if you are wrong. That's something that's often hard for us to do. This is what we see from the church there in Jerusalem. They're silent. They're listening to Paul and Barnabas share. They're showing humility in that. And the main thing that Paul and Barnabas share are the many miracles that God worked through them to the Gentiles. And they're ultimately bringing the same reality that Peter did. Hey, Peter says, we experienced God move. He filled the Gentiles with the Holy Spirit. I mean, he's the one who says, I accept them, I save them. And Paul and Barnabas are basically saying the same thing. As we travel through all these different countries, God saved these people. He empowered them with his spirit. He did mighty wonders and miracles through them and in them. And so he has shown that he has accepted them. He has shown that he has saved them. And guess what? It was all just based on their faith in Jesus, not faith in trying to keep the law as well. Well, now Peter has shared and Paul and Barnabas have shared. Now James, who's the pastor of the church there in Jerusalem, he's also the author of the book of James. He is now going to take a moment to share with those that have gathered there. Notice what he says, Acts 15, 13 through 21 says this, after they had become silent, James answered them saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon Peter has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take them out, a people for his name. And with this, the word of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations, though who preached to him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. James here now refers to what Peter shared about among the the work that God did among the Gentiles to take them out uh, as a people for his name. And, And James does something very wise here. Notice that he takes this group of people to God's word. And he quotes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And notice part of what Amos says. He says, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. James is saying, hey, you've heard Peter, you've heard Paul, you've heard Barnabas. They're all bringing up something that God revealed already to us in the Old Testament. God has already declared that his plan always was to save Gentiles. You know, we're having this dispute as to whether or not God's going to do this, but he's always revealed that that is what he was going to do. And James brings them back to the word of God. And notice James doesn't say, you know what, I'm the pastor of this church, so you need to just accept my opinion. I believe that it's Jesus, faith in Jesus alone that saves you, not faith plus the works of the law, so just accept it. No, he brings them back to God's word and gives them a clear biblical answer. And here's the second godly way to deal with different opinions. When dealing with a different opinion, we always need to look to the Bible for the answer. This is something that is so vital. It's not just a matter of what my opinion is versus what your opinion is or, or whoever you're debating with. The real question should be, what does the Bible say? Because yeah, that's the only opinion that really matters, God's opinion, and he's recorded it in his word. And so that's where we should always come back to of what does God's word declare? And we need to be willing to accept what the Bible says over anything or anyone else. I don't care how much you respect an individual. If the Bible says something different, you need to hold to what the Bible says over the individual. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, this verse tells us all of Scripture is inspired by God. 
But do we believe that? Do we really hold to that? All of Scripture is inspired and is profitable for us because there's plenty of Scriptures that we think, oh, I love that Scripture. Yeah, it's definitely inspired by God. I want to apply it to my life. And then there's other Scriptures that we don't like what they say, and it's usually because we're trying to live a certain lifestyle that the Bible says don't live like that. Ah, you know, I don't know if that's really inspired by God. We'll just kind of put that over as maybe inspired or not inspired, and I'll just continue to live the way I want. We need to accept the reality that all Scripture is inspired, and therefore we should believe it and obey it. That's one of the reasons tonight I'm going to be doing this teaching on the evidence for the Bible, why we can be confident that it is trustworthy and inspired by God, and there's overwhelming evidence, as you'll hear tonight. But the goal of that is so that you would come to a place where you would trust what this verse says even more, that you would say, I really do believe all the Bible's inspired, and therefore I need to live it and obey what it says. So hopefully you guys are able to come out tonight and hear that. So James reveals from the word of God that God always had a plan to save Gentiles. And then he says in verse 19, therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. James agrees with Peter. He agrees with uh, Paul and Barnabas. And he says, you know what? We shouldn't be troubling the Gentiles. And when he speaks of troubling the Gentiles, what he means is we shouldn't be telling them It's faith in Jesus plus the works of the law. Adding circumcision and the works of the law was a trouble that was not required biblically. And he says we should not be telling them that they need to do this. So James clearly tells them the Gentiles do not need to do the works of the law in order to be saved. But he doesn't stop there. Notice in verse 20 he says four things the Gentiles should do. But that we write them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Now, if you were James and you had this opportunity to say, hey guys, you know what? You're not saved by faith plus works. You're saved by faith alone. But let me give you four practical things as Gentiles that I want you to do. This probably wouldn't be our list. This Maybe you read this and you think, this is kind of odd. Well, why give these four things of all the four things that you could tell them they should practically do? But I think we're missing the point because we didn't live back then, and we didn't understand the Jewish culture and the significance of these things. And what would happen if a Gentile tried to fellowship with a Jew and did these four things? things. You see, James is sharing these four things because he's saying, you know what, I recognize that I'm sharing with you, you don't need to do the law in order to be saved, but I also want to give you some practical things to help your relationships with the Jewish community. So James gives four practical things that the Gentiles should do, and each one is to help this relationship between Jew and Gentile to flourish. You see, at that time, most fellowship was kind of like it is today, centered on eating. You'd come together, you'd eat meals together. But understand, there's a problem presented to Gentiles because they have very different eating customs than the Jews did. Remember, God commands the Jews some very specific things. In Leviticus chapter 17, God clearly tells the Jews, you cannot eat meat sacrificed to idols. You cannot eat meat uh, from an animal that was strangled, and they couldn't eat meat uh, that didn't have the blood drained from it. That was very clear in Leviticus. It was something that God had for them to kind of separate them from the Gentile world and how they were living. And so, hey, Jews of that time, that is the way in which they would eat. And so if you were going to eat something sacrificed to an idol or the blood wasn't drained or it was strangled, you know, they thought, well, there's no way we're going to partake in that meal. But for Gentiles, that was super common. I mean, all over the place, they were eating meat sacrificed to idols because that was the meat that was sacrificed and then sold really cheap. And you're like, I want a good deal. I'll buy that meat, eat it. I don't have any issue with it. You know, the, the customs were different. You know, animals are strangled. The blood wasn't drained. They still ate it. So you have two different eating customs but yet a Jew would never eat with a Gentile who did that. And so James understands this. You're not bound by the law. You don't have to do the law in order to be saved. But let me give you four practical things in order to help you in your relationship with Jews because we want to still reach them. Even though we're telling you you don't have to uphold the law and basically be Jewish to be saved, we also recognize they don't have to stop being Jewish to be saved. And we don't want to have this barrier that keeps Gentile and Jew from fellowship and from being able to spend time with one another. And so James shares 
these things. Now, James also encourages them to abstain from sexual immorality. And most commentators agree that James is not speaking about the most common things of sex outside of marriage. You know, that basically any Christian is something that they're not allowed to do. So it's not just like, well, that's only for you Gentiles. No, that's something for everyone. But there was specific laws in Leviticus chapter 18 about marriage within Jewish relationships where they weren't allowed to marry someone who was their cousin and you know who had a close relationship which in the Gentile world that wasn't practiced Uh, and so once again most commentators believe this is just another area where Gentiles would do things not even thinking about it that would be something that the Jews would look at and say whoa that's that's totally unacceptable and so James gives these four things as a practical way to encourage them in their relationship with these Gentiles. And and I want you to note something here because he already said, you know what, you guys don't have to do the works of the law to be saved. But I do encourage you to do these four things. They're not required under the law to do this. This It's not a salvation issue, but it is an issue of, you know what, you're not required by the law, but you are required by the law of love. If you want to reach Jews, if you want to have a relationship with them, then you're going to have to be willing to lay down some of your liberties and rights in order to reach them with the gospel and reach them in fellowship because this is going to be a confrontation. You know, Paul clearly understood in Christ, you're free to eat what you want. I mean, he came back, you know, his background was a Jew and he had all these requirements and that he lived his whole life and he finally got to a point where he realized, I don't have to do this. I don't have to eat like this. I don't have to do these things. I realize in Christ I have complete freedom. My salvation and my relationship with God is not based on whether I eat this meat sacrificed to an idol or not, whether I eat meat that strangle or not, whether I do this. Paul came to that realization, and in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, he makes very clear, he builds this case, there is complete freedom in Christ in this. But he doesn't leave it there. He ends with a challenge to those who have that freedom. Yeah, you're free to eat what you want. But there are those who don't see that freedom in their own life. There are those who have been brought up in a different custom than you, who have been told their whole life, you can't do this, this is wrong. And this is something that is a problem for them. It's a stumbling block to them. And so Paul says something that I want you to note, both in Romans and 1 Corinthians, as a challenge to those who recognize we have freedom to eat what we want, but yet notice the challenge that he offers to them. Romans fourteen fifteen. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, You are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. 1 Corinthians 8.13 Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul throws out this challenge. Hey, yeah, you're totally at liberty to eat this, but yet, if what you're doing is causing another person to stumble, do you love them enough not to do it in front of them? Do you love them enough not to have this stumbling block before them? Because that's the challenge. You're free to do it. You can do it. But there's also the law of love. The law of love that says, you know what? I'm willing to lay down my liberty in order to show love to someone who doesn't recognize they have this liberty. And that's the whole passage of both of those things that Paul is kind of bring out of, yes, we have these liberties, but yet as believers... Are we willing to lay that down, to reach people with the gospel? Are we willing to lay that down to show people that we love them? So James and Paul, they understand there are freedoms that you have in Christ, like the freedom to eat whatever you want, but you need to exercise those freedoms under the law of love. This is a great challenge to us as believers today. We have the freedom to do a lot of things. But many of those freedoms do cause people who are young in the faith or maybe those who really aren't really sure of a lot of what the Bible says, they cause them to stumble because of backgrounds they have or struggles that they've had or whatever it may be. And there's a time where we have to say, you know what? Am I going to just hold on to my freedom and just say, you know what, you just need to grow up and mature? Or am I going to say, I'm actually the more mature one. I know more about Scripture, but yet I'm going to show my maturity in demonstrating love to them. And doing something that's not going to stumble them instead of just saying, demanding my freedom and moving forward with this. You know, I think the third godly way that we should deal with different opinions. When dealing with different opinions, remember we are all under the law of love. So treat those you differ with in a loving way. This goes so far. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. You know, when you have differing opinions and there's conflict and you're debating things, often things are said harshly and and there's these attacks that usually come. And when you can show love to one another, it is such a huge thing to heal hurts, to cover a multitude of sins, to move forward and get to what does the Bible actually say? 
And I think when you're debating with people, this is so important to realize you've got to deal with one another in a very loving way. So Peter and Paul and Barnabas, they've all made very clear, and James, salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, not faith in Jesus plus the works of the law. They realize, hey, these other guys who have said you have to be circumcised, you have to do the law of Moses in order to be saved, they're, un- they're wrong. It's unbiblical to declare that. Well, now we come to a very important part. These guys who haven't held the view of Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas, they hear what's being said, they hear the biblical arguments, and now we're going to see how are they going to respond to what's been said. Verse 22 says this, Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some of you went out from us, have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same thing by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from thing, these things, you will do well. Farewell. So here they come up with a plan. All these people who are Gentiles, who guys from here, Jerusalem, went out and told them this thing that wasn't true, that they need to have faith in Jesus plus the works of the law in order to be saved. They said, we're going to write a letter. We're not just going to write a letter describing the fact that we didn't send those guys to you to begin with. We don't agree with what they say, and we want you to be confident that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone. We're also going to send two representatives from our church to go with your guys, Paul and Barnabas, and they're going to come, and they're going to declare to you this truth that it's faith in Jesus alone that saves you. Now, I think we need to note something here. Notice we're told that After this decision is made to send this letter, the apostles, the elders, with the whole church agree to this. Now, with the whole church means the group of people who at one point in time disagreed, who had a different view, who thought salvation was by faith in Jesus plus the work of the law, they have now come to a point where they have changed their view. They've allowed themselves to be convinced by the evidence from the scriptures, from these men who are in leadership of the church, and by the confirmation of the Holy Spirit, they were wrong. They were willing to be taught and shown that they were wrong and accepted. And this is the fourth godly way to deal with differing opinions. When we're clearly shown from the word of God that we're wrong in something that we believe, we should be humble enough to admit it, to admit when we're wrong and change our thinking to be in line with the Bible. If someone brings you to God's word, they reveal that something that you hold to, something that you believe, does not go in line with God's word, the question I want you to ask yourself is, are we willing to humble ourselves, change what we believe, and bring it in line with God's word? That's the challenge, because sometimes we hold a thing so tightly that we we, we miss the reality that, wait a second, I should only really want to believe what the Word of God says. And so if I'm confronted with the fact that what I believe is not go in line with what the Word of God says, I should be anxious to change my belief. I should desire and humble myself to say, you know what, I want to change and be in line with what God's Word tells me. You know, when I went to Bible college in my first semester, I I had a debate with uh, several of my roommates about, you know, the Holy Spirit's role within the church. Now, understand that I came out of a background where the church that I grew up in, you know, you could basically do whatever you wanted. Uh, There was no order with it. You could speak in tongues. You could prophesy. uh, You could interrupt the pastor. You could do it all service long. I mean, whatever you wanted to do went. It flew. It was okay. Uh, and, And that's kind of my upbringing. And so, you know, as we're debating, I was coming from the side of, you know what, I think Calvary Chapel, you guys just, you hinder the Holy Spirit and you don't 
give uh, enough freedom for people kind of just to do what they want. And they were coming from the side of, no, we need to have order in our church service and, and, and approach the gifts of the Spirit that way. Uh, and so we were having this debate, um, and one of my roommates asked a great question. His question was, what verses in the Bible do you have to support your view? And that should be one of the first questions we always have. Okay, that's nice that that's your opinion, but what verses in the Bible do you have to back up your opinion? And, you know, and I just started thinking about that, and I realized, you know, I don't really have any verses to back up that opinion. I have verses that tell me about the different gifts, but I don't really have a verse that says, you know, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want uh, with that. And then I said, well, what verses do you have? Kind of, you know, well, I don't have them, but you probably don't have them either. Uh, and then they took me to passages in 1 Corinthians, which Paul clearly lays out the order in which these things should be done. Hey, if you're speaking in tongues, two or three at the most, in order, there must be an interpreter. If there's not, keep silent. Prophecy, the same thing, two or three at the most. Let everyone judge whether this is from God or not. There's clear order. It's clearly laid out. And I kind of saw that and realized, oh, wow. The Bible is clearly telling me that my view was wrong. It's just right here. It's plain as day. It's something I never really looked at. It wasn't ever taught to me, but it was there. And I was now placed in this position of, was I going to humble myself and accept the fact that God's word teaches something that I don't hold to and I need to get in line with that? Or is I just going to keep arguing and trying to defend you know, what I thought? And I came to a place where I said, you know what? You're right. <laughs> it's right here. And I humbled myself and I was willing to change my view on that particular area because I realized my view did not go in line with what the word of God taught. And so this is a challenge that we have as we face debates are we going to be in that place where we're humble enough when we're faced with God's word that if you have a differing view you're willing to change it because ultimately we should all desire to be in line with what the word of God says so they write this letter to the church in Antioch about their decision and I want you to notice something in verse 28 it said for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon no greater burden than these things that were necessary. Now, notice who ultimately made this decision. You could say, well, you know, the apostles and James and Paul and Barnabas, they you know, gave their opinion and everyone just fall, fell, fell in line. Well, actually, the ultimate person who made this decision, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. He was the one leading these guys. He was the one guiding this because this was true. This was what the answer was. And he wanted to make sure that everyone in the church understood, hey, salvation is by faith alone, not faith plus works. And so don't go away thinking, well, that was just these guys opinion. No, this was God's opinion, and God made sure that everyone heard that, and fortunately, these guys were humble enough to accept it and believe in it. Well, now the letter is sent to Antioch and the church there that's full of Gentiles, and let's see how they respond when they receive it, verse 30 to 35. So when they sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter When they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. So after the believers in Antioch read this letter, because remember the last thing they heard is, hey guys, especially think of the men there, you need to be circumcised. What? Yeah, if you want to be saved, that's part of it, and you need to hold up the law of Moses. So they're already like, this is not something that we wanted to hear. This is not something that's good for us. And now they hear this wonderful news of, it's faith in Jesus alone. What you were taught before is true. What you believe this whole time is true. You don't need to change that reality. It's not adding the works of the law. You already are saved because you placed your faith in Jesus. You know, there's a lot we can learn from this Jerusalem council, and I think one of the most important is salvation is through faith in Jesus alone, not faith plus our works. And that's such a wonderful thing to know and such a wonderful thing to hold to that, you know what, I'm not going to gain or lose it based on works that I do. I gain it and I keep it because I place my faith in the work of Jesus Christ who did it all for me because I couldn't do it. I couldn't do enough to get perfection, to get salvation, to attain God's pleasure and approval. The only thing I could do was accept Jesus and his work for me to enable that to happen. Another important thing we learn are four godly ways to deal with differing opinions among believers. First, humbly listen when others share different views from ours. 
with a willingness to be persuaded if wrong. Number two, always look to the Bible for the answer. Number three, remember we're under the law of love, so treat those who differ with you in a loving way. And number four, be humble enough to admit when you're wrong and change your thinking to be in line with the Bible. I want to end with this quote from Augustine, the third century biblical scholar. He says this, In essentials, believers must have unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. I think it's a great perspective when it comes to debates among the body of Christ. Unessential things like salvation, there has to be unity. We can't just agree to disagree because this isn't too important to say, well, you can believe something that's unbiblical and I'll believe something that's biblical. No, we have to debate that and come to, we need to see what the Bible says and we all need to hold it unified together. But on issues that are non-essentials, Unfortunately, in the church world, we we fight the same way. No, no, you have to agree with me. Well, wait a second. These are non-essentials. You know, kind of like, all right, well, the the way in which the service is run, is it contemporary or is it traditional? And, oh, you have to be contemporary or you have to be traditional. No, I mean, there's liberty in that. And and different churches can have liberty to run their services in that way, in a different way, and that's fine. We we can agree to disagree on that, or we can say, you know, that's fine that you do that. We're going to do this. These are non-essentials, and so we should have liberty in that. But I love how he ends with everything... There needs to be charity, which now we say love. That's got to be the heart of it all. When we're trying to bring unity because it's an essential, we better do it in love. When we recognize there's you know, non-essentials, there should be liberty, but we need to do it in love. Love needs to be the thing that's at the heart of all of it. And if we do that, man, debates and discussions and things are just so much better and so much more biblical. And usually people then come to a place where they're humble enough to recognize, hey, I want to get in line with what the Bible says. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are so thankful that you record for us this very important council in Jerusalem, Lord, because they come to a conclusion that is so vital for the body of Christ to know that we are saved by our faith in you alone. I'm so grateful for that personally, Lord. I'm so grateful that you saved me, that you died for me, and that you did that for all of us, Lord. And it's just our belief in you and what you've done that brings us to that place of salvation. Lord, help us to be encouraged by that. But also, Lord, I pray that we would learn this morning and put into practice these truths that we see, these practical examples that are demonstrated to us of how we can deal with those who differ in opinions from us because we have a lot of that in the body of Christ, Lord. And help us, Lord, to be those who have a biblical reason for why we do what we do, but also to be humble and open and loving with those that we discuss things with and share with, Lord. And uh, God, that we would just see more love in debates that are biblical uh, in the body of Christ, Lord. There's just too much uh, anger and other things that come out, and uh, it just doesn't bring your heart to it, Lord. And so I pray that you would help us in that. You would encourage us with that, Lord. We're just grateful, and we ask, God, that you would help us change. Uh, We recognize that we need you to help us become more like you, uh, and so we pray that you would do that for us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.